Hello and welcome again to Euangelion, interpreting scripture and life. As we make our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, we are at Galatians chapter 4 now, we're just over the halfway mark, and today we will deal with verses 1 through 11, and the first in a series of three arguments um, in Galatians 4, which contribute to the overall picture that Paul is trying to present One of the key things to understand for today's podcast is the second, really, of two motifs which underpin the letter. I'll come back to this again. But as we've already stated, one of the key motifs for understanding Galatians is life emerging from death. We've seen that in a number of the sequences, and we'll see it again in three more sequences um, in chapter five and then twice in chapter six. The second, though, is the one we'll think about more profoundly today, and this is the one which, in fact, runs right through uh, the rest of the letter to the Galatians, and that is freedom emerging from slavery. You know, in all its forms, slavery is one of the greatest blights on the human condition. Whether it's the trafficking of children or enforced prostitution rings, or the transatlantic trade of African peoples to the Americas and to Europe, the removal of self-autonomy and the treatment of any human beings as chattel or property is a grave evil. The experience of God's people in slavery in Egypt left such a mark on them that their later prophets often used the language of the Exodus to talk about other freedom narratives, most importantly, the freedom uh, of restoration from captivity in Babylon. That's indeed the subject of Isaiah 43, and it uses Exodus language to tell that story. Isaiah writes, But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow when you walk through. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba, in your place. That's Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3. Well, in the beginning of Galatians 4, Paul's doing a very similar thing. He's using Exodus language to describe Israel's coming of age, her maturing He draws upon similar metaphors to the ones that we saw two podcasts ago, where the law was described as a steward or a tutor. We'll come back to that. He depicts the law here as an overseer to the people of Israel, newly freed from captivity in Egypt. However, once they'd been freed, to go back to the overseer was to be re-enslaved. It was to turn the clock back on the work that God was doing. So in Paul's mind, for Israel to return to the law was just like Gentiles returning to their idols. And this, in many ways, is the thrust of Galatians 4, 1 through 11. So listen as I read the text and then tease out some of the main ideas. Galatians 4, 1 through 11. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. 
So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you can turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have laboured over you in vain. As is fairly common with Paul's arguments, he often begins with the general case, as he does here in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, before moving to the specific case of Israel, or the church, in this case Israel, in verse 3. Whilst an heir is still a minor, even though the inheritance belongs to him, he can't make use of it until he reaches the age of majority. It's probably worth noting that the word translated child here in verse 1 is the same word that Hosea uses in Hosea 11 verse 1 when he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him as a child. But when the child is under the age of majority, when he's unable to inherit the rights that he has of his father's estate, he's actually no different from a slave, and of course a slave has no inheritance rights at all. Rather, the son remains under guardians and stewards who protect him until he's old enough to inherit what his father's promised to him. Now, as we've mentioned previously, this rehearses the metaphor that we saw in Galatians 3:24 through 25, where the Lord was the law rather was described as a pedagogue. In verse 3 here, the we that Paul refers to must be a reference to Israel. But he says that Israel is in bondage to what the translator here calls the elemental things of the world. What on earth does he mean? Well, let's park here for just a second. The Greek phrase that lies behind the, the phrase elemental things of the world, which also appears in Colossians 2 verse 20, is the Greek phrase stoikeia to kosmu, principles of the world or basic elements of the world. There's been endless debates about this phrase and what it might mean. The work of Blintzler and Schweitzer and others has suggested most persuasively in my mind that the term refers to the basic elements of the physical universe, namely earth, air, fire and water. That cohort of Greek philosophers known as the pre-Socratics, just because they came before Socrates, became obsessed with the question of how various elements of matter in the universe could emerge from one common substance. Probably the first true Greek philosopher, Thales, argued that the one common substance from which everything came was water. His student, Anaximander, claimed that the one common substance was a, a boundless infinity from which everything else emerged. Anaximander's own student, Anaximenes, claimed that the basic substance was air, whilst Heraclitus said it was fire. 
Recently, a Galatian scholar called Martinus de Boer, a student of the late great John Louis Martin, suggested that it's quite likely that many Gentiles, including possibly the Galatian Gentiles, may have worshipped the elements as deities, worshipped fire, probably in the sun, or worshipped water. Indeed, the term stoicheia, when it's away from the phrase stoicheia to cosmu, generally refers to anything that belongs to a series or a sequence. It's been used in early Greek literature to describe the movements of a sundial. There is some logic to this, of course. Earth, air, fire and water as the basic building blocks of the physical universe give structure and order to the universe. Now, in the context of Galatians 4 verses 1 through 11, Paul can hardly be concerned about the components of the universe. But think about how he's using the term. In Galatians 4.3, the Stoicheia to Cosmu are said to have held Israel in bondage. The term appears again in verse 9, where it refers to that which enslaved the Gentiles. In the context of Galatians 4.1-11, the Stoicheia seem to refer to any enslaving powers to which people give their allegiance. And the metaphor is actually appropriate, as oftentimes arenas where there is strong structure or sequence can sometimes feel stifling, like it's limiting creativity. When there's too much order and too much instruction and regulation, you can feel smothered. Indeed, you can feel somewhat like a slave. For Paul, the Gentiles had been enslaved by idols. Controversially, Israel had been enslaved by the law. Something that's also typical of Paul is that part of his strategy to demonstrate the equality of Jew and Gentile is to suggest that they are actually blessed together. Indeed, the rest of the passage uh, is aimed at showing that the Gentiles had their own coming of age. This is what verses 8 through 11 are all about. They were released from their bondage to idols, and so together, both Jew and Gentile, having reached maturity, not being kids anymore, became free. And when did they become free? Well, they became free at this important epochal moment, this moment of liberation, both of Israel and the Gentile nations. When the fullness of time came, he says in Galatians 4, verse 4, God sent his son. Now, the term born of a woman, in some people's mind, uh, is a reference to uh, the virgin birth, because he doesn't mention birth from a father. Um, I think that's a bit of a stretch. It might possibly be a nod to the incarnation. However, where he says born under law, this is critical. Think back to Galatians 3, 13 to 14. There Christ is said to redeem Israel from the curse so that we might receive the Spirit. In Galatians 4 verse 5, Christ redeemed us again, this time from under the law, so that we might receive something else. Adoption as sons. The Greek term simply means sonship. But then in verse 6, what does adoption do? It opens the doorway for the Spirit. The Spirit rushes into our hearts, causing us to cry, Abba, Father, acknowledging us as the sons and daughters of God. The term Spirit of His Son here ought not to throw us 
I think it's simply a, a reference to the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Spirit are often um, used interchangeably. I think of 2 Corinthians 3, 17 or 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. But I think it's Paul's way of saying that our sonship to God is somehow a derivative of Jesus's own great sonship to God. He is the Son of God by which we become sons and daughters of God. But there's a clearly uh, parallel claims being made in Galatians 3:13 to 14 and Galatians 4:5 to 6. The upshot is simply this: when someone becomes a son of da or daughter of God, then they're truly free redeemed and free from any bondage. In verse 8, Paul reminds the Galatian Gentiles of the time when they were enslaved to idols, and in verse 9 asks the rhetorical question, now that they've come to know and be known by God, how could they want to submit to Jewish cultural practices and basically become slaves all over again? We see in verse 10 here, where Paul talks about the observation of seasons and um, days and months and years, that circumcision is just one part of the story. These Gentiles were being tempted with wholesale conversion to Judaism. The subject of the next podcast will be verses 12 through 20, where Paul somewhat changes tack. He turns away from historical, theological and pragmatic arguments and actually makes an emotional appeal to the Galatians. And we find out a little bit of the backstory to when Paul first turned up in Galatia. The sense of dismay that we see in verse 11 pretty much sets the stage. Paul was concerned by the way these Galatian Gentiles were being potentially turned away. Think back to Galatians 1 verse 6 and makes an emotional appeal. He was concerned that all his work in Galatia was about to amount to nothing. I'll reiterate now what I've suggested previously because this very much sums up my understanding of the theology of Galatians. The justification theology of Galatians is expressed, as I've said, in two chief metaphors. The first, and I think most significant, is the notion of life emerging from death. But the second metaphor is the notion of freedom emerging from slavery. And it's for these joint reasons that I've argued in my research that the story in Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, the so-called Valley of the Dry Bones, forms a narrative backdrop for the story that Paul's trying to tell in Galatians. So in both Ezekiel's story of Judah's restoration and Paul's story of human justification, we see God's people are in a state of death and they are made alive by the Spirit. And that results in two things, a newfound freedom and a radically new impetus to engage with God's law. This is Ezekiel's story and it's Paul's story. Freedom's always been something of a double-edged concept. Without freedom, we can never truly become who we're supposed to be, only what someone else wants us to be. But give a young child too much freedom and they're likely to hurt themselves or other people. The existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre once claimed that mankind is condemned to be free. His argument was that there was no predefined purpose in the world, and that the only purpose that an individual had was the purpose that they created for themselves by the exercise of their own freedom. That, of course, can be dangerous freedom. 
And if one fails to truly recognize the danger of the freedom that they have, Sartre claimed that they lived in what he called mauvais foi in the French, bad faith, a kind of inauthenticity whereby someone attaches their identity to something not of their own making, which is kind of a definition of slavery. Freedom's clearly a springboard from which can come good or evil. Another French philosopher, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, was correct, I think, when he said that oftentimes social institutions corrupt people so that even though we're free, we still end up becoming slaves. Slaves to technology, to social media, to money, to prestige, to power. It makes sense to me, then, that real freedom has to be something incorruptible. In other words, it can't be something that comes from the corruptible human condition. To be in Christ is both to acknowledge your human frailties and yet simultaneously acknowledge God's perfection and his grace in accepting us despite our frailties. It seems to me, as I think it did to Paul, that this is true freedom. It's the removal of all enslaving influences so that we can stare in the face of our own shortcomings and yet be at complete peace with who we are because we do so cradled in the arms of God. This is the one who at just the right time sent his son so that we might become mature, so that we might become perfect, so that we might become sons and daughters of God and never turn back to the weak and beggarly principles of slavery.